Well, some of you may have seen Sam Mendez's most recent film entitled 1917, which came out in theaters this past Christmas. The film is set in the spring of 1917, during World War I on the Allied Western Front in Northern France. British soldiers have been doing aerial reconnaissance work and had uncovered that German forces were removing their troops from the front line. For British troops on the ground, though, they suspected that the German troops were in retreat. But in reality, the Germans were just consolidating their forces, pulling them back off of the line, and then repositioning their men for an even heavier offensive attack. Now, eventually, British General Aaron Moore gets word about what's going on, but time is running out. With only 24 hours to spare and phone lines down, making it impossible to warn the troops on the front line, the general comes up with another plan. And so he calls in two young soldiers, Lance Corporals, Tom Blake, and William Schofield. And as Tom stands before General Aaron Moore, the general says this to him. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It's a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? And what proceeds in this film is a heart pumping epic rescue mission where these two young men cross into no man's land racing against the clock in order to warn British troops of an attack that would eventually cost them their lives. Well, as we see this morning, the Apostle Paul himself has sent a message to the church in Colossae, and it's a message of warning. He's warning them of false teaching that threatens this small congregation's assurance in Christ. And so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament letter of Colossians. You can find it there on page 983 in the red seat back Bible in front of you. This morning we begin a four-week series in the New Testament letter of Colossians. Colossians is one of four letters that was written by Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. They're known as the prison epistles, and that is Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, written by Paul around A.D. 60. And while Paul's in Rome, imprisoned, there's a Christian man that comes to him named Epaphras, and he comes and he tells Paul about this incredible work that's going on in his hometown of Colossae. Now, more than likely, Epaphras probably heard the gospel from Paul while he was preaching in Ephesus, and then he went and took that gospel back to his hometown of Colossae. And eventually, Epaphras makes it back to Rome, or to Rome, back to Paul, to tell him of this incredible work of God going on in this little podunk church. Not only is he explaining the incredible work of God, but he's also talking about his concern for the false teaching that threatens their hope in Christ. False teaching that was saying that Christ is good, but he's not good enough. And after hearing this report, Paul writes what may be the most Christ-centered letter in the New Testament. I beg of you to differ. Colossians 
is at one and the same time a letter of encouragement and a letter of warning. He encourages them to continue in Christ, whom they have received, as you see in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And then he's also warning them of those who are going to try to add to Christ in order to be more spiritual, to just add to Jesus. Which is why I think we could say that the main theme for this letter is this. Christ's supremacy over all things means that he is enough for us in all things. I think that's the theme of the letter. Christ's supremacy over all things means he's enough for us in all things. Or to put it another way, the Christian's maturity rests on Christ's supremacy. The Christian's maturity rests on Christ's supremacy. Now, Colossae, it was not your New York City or L.A. of the Greco-Roman world. It wasn't Rome, the center of the empire. It wasn't like Ephesus, a major commercial port city, third largest city in the empire. It wasn't even the most prominent town in its region. It was outstripped by Laodicea. It was outstripped by Heropolis. No. Colossae was a small town in what some may have thought to be a not-so-glamorous part of modern-day Turkey. And yet Paul thought that this small church's life in Christ in an unimpressive town was important enough to write this letter. Brothers and sisters, we have 13 of Paul's letters, and this is one of them, to a podunk church. And God decided for it to be in the canon of Scripture. I think that's instructive for us. I know I'm hitting application early, but I think that's instructive. That though there may be more strategic places for ministry throughout the empire, and I'm speaking to myself even on this, that though there's more strategic places for ministry throughout the empire, this small church in this small town is no less significant. It's no less significant. It teaches us that Paul is concerned with every believer's maturity in Christ, no matter where that church is located, and no matter how many members that that church has. And so my hope for our time in this sermon series is to see the bigger picture of this letter and its application for our lives. What Paul has to say in this letter is also of concern for us, and it's just as important for us today. So we're not gonna be able to address everything. This is a big chunk of text, and there is a lot in there. And it was a labor this week to try to figure out exactly how to preach it. So we're not gonna be able to touch everything. If you have questions, I'm more than happy to chat with you about it. I'd love to chat about all the nitty gritty details, but we're gonna try as best as we can what I want to do is to be able to give you a bigger picture of this section of text on this first sermon. And we're going to do that for all four weeks. I want you to get a bigger picture view of this book. And so this morning, I'm almost going to kind of just serve as your guide, working you through paragraph by paragraph, showing you the point of the text and some of the major themes of the text. So let's look at Colossians 1. I'm going to read all of it right now. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I think the main idea of this passage this morning is this. Christ's supremacy fuels ministry for the sake of maturity. Christ's supremacy fuels ministry for the sake of maturity. And I think we're going to see this in two points. since the breakdown of the text this morning. The first is Paul's gratitude. We're going to look at that in verses 1 all the way to verse 23. Paul's gratitude to God. Point one. Point two is Paul's goal in ministry. Looking at that in verse 24 all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul's goal in ministry. So point one, Paul's gratitude to God. Paul begins his letter as he typically does. Yet what's important to note is Paul's designation as an apostle And notice in verse 1 that Paul isn't self-appointed, but he is an apostle by the will of God. Paul was appointed by God himself, and he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, meaning that he is the one who speaks on behalf of Christ. He has Christ's stamp of approval. And he's calling attention to his authority and his credentials as apostle in order to address the threat of false teaching in Colossae. But the first thing that he begins his letter with is thanks. In verse 3, he says, We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Every time Paul prayed for the Colossians, he was giving thanks to God for them. Every time he prayed for them, he was giving thanks to God for them. Why? He says in verse 4 that it's because of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love they have for all the saints. The Colossians' faith and love weren't based on feeling, rather they were rooted in Christ and expressed not only, did you notice, for those that maybe they liked or that they were best friends with, but for all the saints. Their love was not selective. It wasn't selective. And look what ignites and produces this faith and love. Paul says it's because of the hope laid up for them in heaven, in verse 5, which they heard in the gospel as they learned it from Epaphras, in verse 7. And notice how Paul describes this hope. He says that it's laid up for him, laid up for them in heaven. This hope is certain, it's secure, it's laid up in heaven. It's different than a worldly understanding of hope. 
Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation for all who've been united to Christ in the hope of glory. It's a confident expectation. So the question with biblical hope isn't whether or not you're going to get what you hope for, but how you'll live knowing it's already guaranteed. And it's this hope in the face of false teaching that actually fuels their faith and love. And this is why Paul gives thanks. He thanks God for the gospel securing their hope and their hope fueling their faith and love. And what Paul thanks God for in verses 3 through 8, he actually now prays for, if you notice that, in verses 9 through 14, showing that our prayers of thanksgiving are actually connected to our prayers of petition. So he begins with why he's praying. He says, and so, or for this reason, Paul will pray what he does because he's grateful for the gospel fruit in their lives. His prayer is grounded in gratitude. And there are a couple of things to see with the content of this prayer. First, we see what Paul prayed for. And second, we see why he prays for it. So first, what Paul prays. In verse 9, Paul prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is really just one thing in this text that Paul is praying for, and then everything else is just hanging off of that very thing itself. And so he's praying that God would help them know, right? Is he praying that God would help them know what job to get, who to marry, what the future holds, where to move, what job to take, as fine as all of those things would be to pray for. Those are fine things to pray for. But that's not what he means by the knowledge of his will. Rather, throughout the scriptures, we're taught that the knowledge of his will is his word. Look at what it says. Look at what it consists of. He says that it's in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And if you jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that in Christ, what a glorious verse this is. Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So do you want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Look no further than God's word made flesh. As they grow in their knowledge of Christ, so they grow in their knowledge of his will and how to walk in it by the Spirit, which is the aim of his prayer. So number two, thing, the second thing we see with this prayer is why Paul prays this. He says in verse 10 that it's to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul expects this knowledge of God's will to lead to a Christ-pleasing life. That's what he expects. The purpose of this knowledge isn't for boasting, rather it's for bearing fruit. The goal is spiritual maturity that desires to please the Lord and not bring shame to his name. That's what it's getting at. Paul's concerned Getting in the context, Paul is concerned that this false teaching is going to distract them by taking their eyes off of their all-sufficient Savior, and he wants to keep them. He wants to keep their eyes focused on Christ. And so he gives four typical characteristics of what a Christ-pleasing life looks like. So the first thing he mentions right there 
is that it looks like bearing fruit in every good work. It looks like increasing in the knowledge of God. It looks like being strengthened with God's power for all endurance and patience. It looks like joyfully giving thanks to the Father for his work in their lives. And what began with thanks in verse three, it continues in thanks because the Father has qualified them for their heavenly inheritance. He has qualified them and then he has delivered them from the domain of darkness and then he has transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son, also known as the kingdom of light, opposite of domain of darkness. And what does this look like? It looks like giving thanks to God. And it's this son through whom is the forgiveness of sins that Paul just erupts in poetic praise for in verses 15 through 20. Look at this exalted picture of Christ right here. Paul is really painting two major ways of looking at Christ, and he's doing so thematically. That of Christ being the Lord of creation in verses 15 through 17, and then Christ being Lord of the church, verses 18 through 20. So I just want to walk through this incredible resume of Christ. Let's just walk through it. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. Just a few moments ago, JJ read from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And in that passage, God creates both man and woman according to his own image, and then he gives them a job description. Part of what it means to be made according to God's image is to represent God to the world by ruling over it in obedience to him. However, as we'll all experience, that, room, or that rule in Adam in Genesis 3 was ruined due to sin. Instead of bringing joy and peace, thorns and thistles res resulted. And yet here we see that Jesus wasn't created according to God's image, right? He's not according to God's image like Adam and like us. No, Christ is the very image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter one, verse three, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, as Paul says in verse 29. Actually, in verse 19. He visibly represents God's rule to the world, and he succeeds where Adam and where we have failed. And it's only through saving faith in him that we are restored to the fullness of God's image. This type of rule and authority is also picked up with Jesus being described as the firstborn of all creation. It's getting into a similar kind of thing. Contrary to Jehovah's Witnesses, this isn't speaking about Jesus being the first created being in a series of created beings. That's not what it's getting at. Rather, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's firstborn son. Exodus chapter four, verse 22. David, in Psalm 89, 27, is said to be the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so in this context, the term is emphasizing Jesus' sovereignty and his rule as the one appointed to reign as king by the Father. After all, look at the reason that Paul gives. Just look at your context. Look at the reason that Paul gives in verse 16. It's because by him... 
all things were created. Not only that, but in verse 17, he says that he is before all things and that all things hold together in him. The focus is on Jesus' rank as the supreme and superior one over all creation. Creation exists through him, by him, and for him. Therefore, God didn't create the world so that he could have you, but so that you could have him. He is the one through which and the end for which God created the world. As Abraham Kuyper once put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All creation, whether visible or invisible, would fall apart without Christ's nail-pierced hands holding it together. Christ is the Lord of creation. Paul then shifts his focus in verse 18 to describe Christ as the Lord of the church. He says that he is the head of the body, the church. Paul uses the word head right here to describe how Christ is the sovereign authority over his people. The head directs the body. It gives life and strength to the body. The church has no life apart from its head. You sever the head, you lose life. He is also the firstborn from the dead, meaning that he was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. He is the founder of a new humanity, and his resurrection secures all future resurrections of all who follow him. He rules everything in his creation and in the creation to come, the new age. The goal of this is so that he might be preeminent or that he might be first place in all things, which is possible because all the fullness of God dwells in him and to reconcile all things to himself. Notice how he describes this reconciliation. How does it come about? It comes about by making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship at odds to a place of peace. It takes, it takes a relationship at odds and brings it to a place of peace. Because Jesus is supreme over everything, God will effect cosmic reconciliation. This is cosmic Christology. This is cosmic study of Christ. And God will effect cosmic reconciliation or the restoration of all things on earth and in heaven through Christ because of the comprehensive effects of sin. It's through Jesus' death on the cross that everything that opposes God in this universe will be subdued and there will be no enemy who is able to undo his will. Yet for now, we're invited to participate in this reconciliation. Paul has exalted the person and work of Christ comprehensively and now he applies it to these Colossian Christians specifically by defining this reconciliation in verses 21 through 23. Notice how Paul speaks to their past, present, and future situation right here. He says that once you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now, the present, they are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. For what purpose? 
for the purpose of presenting them holy and blameless and above reproach before them, before him, future. Brothers and sisters, this is our past, present, and our future. Our reconciliation is only accomplished by the one who is supreme over all creation and over the church. We were once alienated and separated from God in our sin and have now been reconciled, not by our work of the body of flesh, but by his body of flesh through his death. It is only through repentance and faith in our supreme Lord's death and resurrection that we could ever be at peace with God. However, if you're here and you wouldn't say that Christ is supreme in your life, maybe your life doesn't even look like Christ is supreme, then know that Christ's supremacy for you is a double-edged sword. God's act of reconciling all things through his death will either bring peace through forgiveness of your sins or peace through your judgment in the end. Peace will come, but it may be through your defeat. Outside of Christ, friend, you are still alienated toward God. You are still hostile in mind. You are still dwelling in the domain of darkness, and your end is eternal punishment. Friends, there's great news for you. You can repent of your sin and believe in Christ and live in the freedom and the peace that only he can bring through his death and resurrection. That can happen for you right now this morning. You can be at peace with God. No more war with the Lord. As Pastor Richard Chin once wrote, there is no refuge from Jesus, but only refuge in Jesus. And so, friend, rest in him for the forgiveness of your sins. There are a couple of things, a couple of ways I think that we could apply this text. I want to give two of them. So we've walked through it, just showing you passage by passage, just walking you through the text. Two things that I think we can see an application from this. The first is the goal of reconciliation. The goal of reconciliation. Well, Paul is making it clear that Christ is the all-supreme Lord who has provided an all-sufficient salvation, and there is no need to look elsewhere for redemption. And friends, that is good news, right? This is good news, and it's good news is the goal. The goal of the gospel isn't less than forgiveness of sins. It's not less than forgiveness of sins, but it's certainly more. It's to present you holy and blameless before a holy God. The goal is your spiritual maturity. That's the goal of reconciliation, your spiritual maturity. And yes, for Christ's glory. Any of you are thinking, it's Christ's glory. It is for Christ's glory. And that comes through being filled up in Christ, as Paul prays in verse nine and demonstrates in verses 15 through 20. The goal of, your, of the gospel is your spiritual maturity. And so Jesus isn't preeminent in reconciliation so that God won't be mad at you, but so that you would be full in him who is the hope of glory. 
He says as much in verse 23. He reconciles us to present us holy before him. Then he gives the condition. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. We won't be presented before Christ without persevering. It won't happen. Paul's reminding them that they don't just enter God's kingdom by faith, but they also live in the kingdom by faith. And they do that by not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That hope, as we are, we've already seen, is what motivates that faith. And so, brothers and sisters, be warned by that. I think there's an implicit warning in this. Be warned by this. If we're not aiming for holiness, something is off. Something's off. Paul's confident of their faith, but he doesn't want them to lose sight of the goal in the face of false teaching. Paul is exalting Christ before the Colossians so that they don't get distracted, but continue running the race set before them. The supremacy of Christ secures their hope which fuels their perseverance. They will continue in as much as they look to Christ as the one who is supreme. And so will we look to him, look to Christ. Another aspect of our perseverance is our gratitude. Application two, the response of reconciliation. The goal, now the response of reconciliation. Gratitude. Back in verse 3, Paul began this whole section by giving thanks to God for the Colossians' faith, hope, and love. Even while Paul's languishing in prison, writing this letter, he still found reason to give thanks to God. And what's interesting is that Paul is giving thanks for those he's never even met, as he says in chapter 2, verse 2. Remarkably, Paul is teaching the Colossians and us that gratitude isn't based upon our circumstances, but upon the person and work of Christ. As one theologian put it, gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. To believe in Jesus Christ means to become thankful. Paul could be grateful for Christ's work in others because he was grateful for Christ's work of salvation in his own life. Paul shows us that Christ's supremacy grounds our gratitude. And so often, it can be easy for us to just get distracted from what God has done for us. For Paul, it could have been in prison or the suffering that he endured to preach the gospel. For the Colossians, it was the false teachers telling them they weren't spiritual enough and they needed to add to Christ in order to be truly spiritual. For us, it can be a host of things. Depression, death, addiction, problems in parenting, physical ailments, issues with friends, advancement in age, this pandemic, or those stinking, pesky murder hornets. What Paul is showing us is that even in unprecedented times, our Savior remains unparalleled, as Amy Joseph puts it in a Gospel Coalition article. Paul's strategy is to stir up thanksgiving within them and it's instructive for us. Notice the first thing that we see with this thanksgiving. He prays in verses 12 through 14 that they would give thanks to the Father for his work of redemption. Second thing we see, he teaches them in chapter two, verse seven, that a mature life in Christ is one that abounds in thankfulness. 
Third thing, chapter 3, verse 17, he tells them that whatever they do in word or deed, to do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, through Christ. Chapter 4, verse 2, fourth thing, and he commands them to be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Paul teaches us that a thankful life is the result of being full in Christ. In order to be characterized by gratitude, you have to actually spend time thinking upon Christ. We cannot, for a second, take Christ for granted. We can't take him for granted. We need to set our minds on Christ above, as Paul is going to talk about in chapter 3 here in two weeks. And if we're not, then are we truly grateful for the work of Christ? And do we desire to grow in his likeness if we aren't truly grateful? A life of thanksgiving will lead to a life of thanksliving, as it's been said. At the end of the day, no matter what happens, no matter what happens in our lives, it doesn't matter at the end of the day because we of all people ought to be grateful to God for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son, for reconciling us from alienation, isolation, separation, and reconciling us to peace with the Father through the blood of his cross. We of all people have reason to give thanks no matter what in the world is going to happen in the rest of 2020. There's already been enough, and yet there is plenty of reason to continue being grateful to God for all that he's done for you in Christ. So friends, is your life characterized by gratitude? Is it characterized by gratitude? And if not, consider again Christ. Consider what he's done and who he is. Go back and just soak in this passage, which I have not even been able to give it justice this morning. Well, Paul just warned the Colossians that to be presented before the Lord, holy and blameless, they must persevere. And now he transitions to show how he seeks to help with that through his own ministry, broadly in 24 through 29, those verses, and then specifically in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So far, we've looked at Christ's supremacy. Now, we're going to turn in that main idea to the second part, to how his supremacy actually fuels ministry for maturity. Point number two, Paul's goal in ministry. In both of these next sections, Paul is really just stating similar things about his, about his ministry. And so I'm just going to kind of sum all of that up. He structures this whole section around three big themes. The first is his struggle. And I want to start in the middle of, well, I'll, we'll start in verse 24, and then we'll move to the middle in verse 29 in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul begins by saying that he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the Colossians and for the sake of the church worldwide, verse 24. And notice how he describes this suffering. He says he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, that doesn't mean that somehow Christ's death was insufficient to save us from our sins or to pay for sin. That's not what that means. 
Rather, Paul also connects his ministry and suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, when he says that he's always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. As one pastor put it, since Christ is no longer on the earth, he wants his body, the church, to reveal his suffering through its suffering. He wants the church to reveal his suffering through its suffering. And that's why he describes his ministry as toil and as agony. It's a struggle in verse 29 in chapter 2, verse 1. Ministry is a labor. It's hard. And yet that toil isn't done by our own power and strength. Rather, what does it say? What does it say right there in verse 29? It's done by the power of Christ, all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We are not alone in our labor in this ministry. And for Paul, suffering wasn't an end in itself. It had a goal. And clearly, he saw it worth it to suffer in order to accomplish that goal, which is the second thing, his goal. We've seen his struggle, now his goal, second theme. Why does Paul suffer and struggle? Why does he do that? He does so for the sake of the church, verse 24. Okay, but what does that look like? Well, he says it's to make the word of God fully known, the mystery revealed in Christ to his saints. So one reason for Paul's ministry is proclamation. It's the proclamation of God's redemptive purposes in Christ. It's the mystery hidden but now revealed to believers, to all, that one can be united to Christ where Christ is personally present in his people by his spirit, assuring them of their future hope. That's the mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is why he preaches Christ, the hope of glory. He does this how? How does he do it? He warns them. He teaches everyone with all wisdom, which is exactly what Paul does in this letter. Chapter two, he warns them. Chapter three, he teaches them. And the purpose of all of this is the maturity of the believer in Christ, as he says at the end of verse 28, and as he puts it more narrowly in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. All of this is describing spiritual maturity. It's describing spiritual maturity. Paul even prayed for this in verses 9 through 12 when he prayed that they be filled with Christ, walking in a manner worthy of Christ. He told them in verse 23 to persevere in the faith lest they not be presented mature in Christ. And now in these two sections, Paul is toiling to present them mature in the faith. Do you see what Paul is doing right here? Do you see this? He is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions by filling them up with the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is why he can rejoice, which is the third thing, the third theme, his joy. Paul bookends this section in verse 24 
and in chapter 2, verse 5, saying that he rejoices in suffering for their maturity to see their good order and firmness of faith in Christ. Few would say that suffering is a joy. Few would say that. There are a lot of things that someone would rejoice over, but suffering isn't usually one of them. For Paul, though, suffering wasn't an end in itself. Its end was Christ in them. That's his end. And that's why he could rejoice. Christ in us is the hope of glory, and that's worth suffering for. That's worth suffering for. The future is worth the present pain. And we should rejoice in suffering for the gospel as well. Elders. Elders in here or online. I don't even know if there are any online. I think they're all here. For the elders who are here, I think there are some good reminders for us that I want to remind you with and that I want to encourage you with this morning. You have been called by God to shepherd his sheep. And right here is how and for what purpose you do it. There's ever like a shepherd's life verse. This is it. Chapter 1, verse 24, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Shepherd's life verse. This is it. And so keep preaching Christ. That's what Paul is doing. He's proclaiming Christ. So your job is to keep preaching Christ. It's to warn, it's to teach everyone with all wisdom in order to present them mature in Christ. That's what we do. That's what shepherds do. It's a reminding, it's a reminder that eldering is selfless ministry. It is selfless. This ministry is a labor and a struggle. Yet Christ humbled himself for the sake of redeeming us, and we're being called to do a similar thing in that we humble ourselves in order to proclaim this redemption for the good of his sheep. We don't atone for sins through our suffering, but we're suffering in order to see others mature in Christ. And yet, paradoxically, this suffering is actually prospering. It's prospering. You're willingly pouring yourselves out for the sake of others so that through death in you, life is at work in them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what Paul already talked about, filling up what's lacking with Christ's affliction. This labor, as Paul says, it completes our joy to do it. It's a joy. So don't forget that your labor is not by your own strength, but rather it's by the power of Christ that he powerfully works in you. The same resurrection power that got Christ up from the grave is the same power in you seeking to present everyone mature in Christ. It's also a reminder that we don't serve to feel validated or affirmed by others. Ministry isn't about having a platform for our greatness and using it for us. Rather, ministry is a conduit to display the greatness and the supremacy of Christ in this church and throughout the world. That's what you do. You exalt Christ in his supremacy over all things, you preach him. And so, brothers, because Christ reigns supreme in your lives, toil and labor that Christ may be supreme in the lives of your sheep. When sheep get distracted by life, you give them Christ. UBC, 
There is application for us in this. This is a good reminder for us as well that making disciples, that making disciples is basic to what it means to be a disciple. We all need to be for the spiritual good of those around us. Real maturity happens not just when you're hungry for your own growth, but also when you're hungry for the growth of others. And that will cost you. Discipling is costly. It's inconvenient. It may mean meeting with someone at inconvenient hours of the day or cramping your family's style, having somebody over for dinner at night. The kids are going crazy. It could mean using your vacation strategically to bring those that you're discipling on vacation with you. Discipling is hard work, and yet it's your joy to see others filled up in Christ in whom is the fullness of God. That's your joy. And though it will cost you, it's also your joy in getting to see others filled up for Jesus. That's your joy. There are times where I've spoken of it as like a narcotic to get to see the fruit the spiritual fruit of other people. I know a terrible analogy because it's a negative illustration to prove a positive point, but that's beside the matter. Christ must reign supreme in your life. So let the hope of glory fuel your desire to proclaim him in order to present others mature in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you have seen the glory of Christ in this text. Obviously, there's a whole lot more that could have been said. But I think what we have seen is that his supremacy fuels ministry for the sake of maturity. Let's pray.